What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministry Podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 27. I'm kind of bummed because I know eventually we need to be done with this series on King David, but I'm like really, really enjoying it. Again, once we run out of Aves, I'll be done. Uh, the first week we looked at just Dave, and really, I, I really found a lot of hope from it because the idea was um, we all go through this pressure of promotion. We constantly feel like we need to be promoting ourselves, and we're discouraged when we're not promoting ourselves. Um, but we learn God's job is promotion. Our job is devotion. But then the next week we looked at rave and how we are raving with envy. And Saul, he couldn't enjoy what was already given to him because he was always looking at everybody else. We really looked at the enemy of the envy. And what we looked at was we said, look, we must trade ambition for submission for the sake of our salvation. Then the next week we looked at slave which was we can be a slave to our circumstances. We can play the victim. We can feel like there's no victory, but we need to recognize that God actually wants to do more. And usually it's through your detour by the the problems you have now actually are setting you up for something so much better. And then last week we looked at the confusion of the cave. A lot of us are wondering, God, you gave me a vision for the castle, but all I see right now is a cave. And I don't have many people around me. And I am very, I'm wondering what we can do. And what we looked at is we do not let your wear determine what you can bear. Don't use your location as your logic. Well, today, I'm not going to lie. I was trying to figure out how to pull off an ave. I was really reading 1 Samuel 27. I knew we had to do this. So my question to you, have you ever heard of this phrase before? Stave. You heard of stave? It's a real word. Uh, I think I, use, I learned it in vocab like in elementary school, but who remembers that kind of stuff? To stave off literally means to delay danger, to put something aside. You see destruction, destruction coming your way, and so you actually avoid it. You run away. You do things that you ought not do because you just don't want danger. And what we have today is David was staving off his situation. He was still running from Saul and he got overwhelmed and full of doubts. That's what I'm going to look at today. This, the enemy of doubt. We have a really interesting relationship with doubt as Christians. And I think the Bible has the most foundational, the best way, obviously, to view doubt. And I really don't see anybody else viewing doubt the way that scripture does. So that's what I want to spend time looking at today. This is actually point number one. Write it down in your notes. This is kind of the main idea of what we're going to look at today. Don't miss out on doubt, but don't let your doubt move you out. Got it? Don't miss out on doubt, but don't let your doubt move you out. Here's what I mean by that. I think when it comes to religious people, I've had a lot of conversations this week with people who are broken and full of doubt, and some of them who are Christians and some of them who are not Christians. And and here's kind of what I've been picking up. Religious people in general are usually known as people who shut out the doubt, right? Right? We miss out actually on the blessing of doubt. We're always told, don't doubt. Remember like when you ask questions about where, where does God come from when you're five? They're like, just don't worry about it because the parents are like, I don't know. You know, I haven't even thought about that. And so we just say, don't doubt. It's just what the Bible says. You ever grown up saying that? I don't know. It's just what the Bible says and believe it. I don't think that's actually the best way to approach it. Now, we do need to believe what the Bible says, but we need to have an atmosphere where we actually encourage doubt. David, most of his life, he actually is experiencing blessing because he doubts. 
and it leads him to know King Jesus more. So I find it really interesting as religious people as a whole, generally we say, ooh, don't doubt. But what is one of the most famous doubters in the Bible? Thomas. Remember the apostle Thomas, he said, I don't believe that he rose again from the grave. I need to see his hands. I need to see the scars on his hands and his feet. And what I find so interesting is if we were in charge of that, if we were Jesus, we would say, well, then I'm not going to show that to you. You need to believe in me with evidence or no, with no evidence at all. But what I find interesting, if you read that in the gospels, what did Jesus do? He goes to Thomas. He shows him the scars. He lets him touch the hole in his hand. Why does he do that? I think it's because we have a, a relationship with Jesus to where he does not demand you to move out the doubt. He wants you to realize that doubt can actually lead to a further expression of faith. What is so cool with Thomas, this invigorated Thomas. He wasn't a bad guy in the story. In fact, what's really cool, if you talk to anybody that's from India and who is a Christian, most of them, every single person I've met that's from India and is a Christian told me they can trace back their lineage of Christianity to Thomas himself. Thomas, when he believed in King Jesus, when he said, okay, I'm in, he took the message of Jesus, he followed the Great Commission, and he went all the way to India and started the gospel movement that is still there today. Isn't that incredible? So we cannot miss out on doubt. Um, Francis Bacon, he's a scientist. Uh, he's already brilliant because he has the greatest last name ever. Amen? Just put some bacon on it. So Francis Bacon, he said this, and I think it's kind of what the culture believes. And I, and I, I, I think we need to think this way, but not. I'm going to explain. But he says this, if you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. But if you begin with doubts, you will end in certainty. I think that's really good. So, so again, as Christianity, let us not miss out on doubt because it's actually a great way to find him more. However, what do, we, what do the irreligious, what does secular society do? Society today says, well, we love doubt so much, it's all that we do. Let's doubt our society, let's doubt the government, let's doubt any authority. Now, is it healthy to doubt? For sure. I think what's super helpful about our democracy is if somebody is abusing power, we can doubt them, get people together, and get them out of power. However, notice this in our culture today. We have let doubt completely run everything we do. Even if they trust us, even if we've earned their respect, they think, well, at the end of the day, though, I am my own king, and I'm going to doubt you no matter what you've done for me. So what we have is we have nobody trusts in authority, and so everything's kind of chaotic. And so it needs to be this balance, doubt. You can't just let doubt run. I think kind of a false narrative. In fact, we do a lot of ministry at the ASU Polytech campus, and here's what they believe. They think if you're skeptical, that means you're smart. And if you're not skeptical, that means you're not smart. And I think we need to push back against that, okay? So what we're going to look at today is kind of what's the disposition we're supposed to have when it comes to doubt? And, and I think looking at uh, this narrative in 1 Samuel 27 is going to really help us, okay? So 1 Samuel 27, we will see we actually, David has a pretty good relationship with doubt. However, at this time in his narrative, he lets the doubt move him out from the presence of God. Look at verse 1. It said, David said to himself, right away, underline that, realize this is, it's already to go bad. Okay, David said to himself, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me everywhere in Israel, and I'll escape from him. 
So David set out with his 600 men and went over to Achish, son of Maok, the, the king of Gath. Remember Gath? Gath is Goliath's hometown. David and his men stayed with Achish and Gath. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives. Pray for his soul. That's a lot of work. Ahononam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's uh, widow. Now, when it was reported to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now, if you're reading this quickly, you can gather, you can maybe think, wow, David did the right thing because Saul is no longer running after him. Here's a a false theology a lot of us have. We think suffering is always sinful. So if David was no longer suffering, that means God was protecting him. I would dare say not at all, because let me think about it. The, The one person who suffered the most in the eternity and eternity's past is who? King Jesus. And I think he was holy, okay? And so we have to realize um, suffering does not equate to you uh, sinning. So what David does here, what we have to see, doubt lets him move him out. Look at that phrase. He said, David said to himself, friends, when we are doubting, this is clearly what David's doing in this situation, we need to seek counsel. We need to seek, we need to talk to God. The worst thing you can do for your soul is to just talk to yourself. Amen? This is why I love having a wife. I'm a very doubtful person. I doubt everything. It's kind of funny. So me and my wife, were moving. Pray for us. My goodness, it is not fun at all. And I've kind of been against it this whole time because I'm super sentimental. And I'm like, this is our first house, you know, and all this stuff. Well, then we finally, Jordan knew if I just, if we just go check out other houses, he'll get excited. So we found one house. Finally, I found a house that I love. Be perfect for my vlog. And, and so I told Jordan, I was like, hey, this is the house we need. I don't care about the kids. Like this will look good on video, right? And so, um, so I got pumped. I was so excited. And so I told our realtor, like, this is it. And so he, he started writing up a draft. And he was like, we should give him a little more than what you think because you need to have, I'm like, why? He's like, you want this house, right? I was like, well, not really. He's like, what? You know, like, I was like, oh, I doubt everything. I don't know. I'm just a super energetic, passionate person. So it looks like I'm confident, but I'm not confident. I have no idea if that's the right house. I just liked it five minutes ago, but it's a new day. You know, it's, we don't have to have the house today. Would have been great yesterday. So pray for my wife. She's like, what, what, what? So I just was shocked that he wanted us to get that house so bad. He's like, you wanted the house so bad. No, okay. And so this is something I have a relationship with. Doubt is something that like when I was reading this, a lot of times I do messages and I think this will be good for so-and-so. This will be good for all the people. This week is like, this is really good for me. And I want you to write this down. It's not a point in the notes, but I think it's worth putting down. Doubt will move you out if you don't have someone that hears you out. You need to be a person that is constantly verbally processing the things that are happening in your soul. That's why at our church, we really emphasize group time. We really emphasize um, doing life together because I promise you, this life cannot be lived alone. If you read these scriptures and don't seek outside counsel, it'll lead you to doing really, really bad things. Really, we can know that he is actually not in the right state of mind. Still in verse 1, he says, There is nothing better for me. Friends, David has already been saved from the enemy of Saul. He's already slayed Goliath. He did all these things, but he still got to a point where he thought, There's nothing better. Doubt has a way, depression has a way to get into our heart and our soul to where you think the best is not yet to come. It's only what's worse. Let me encourage you with 
the Holy Spirit, with scriptures, the best is always still to come. Always. And you know it's the enemy when you're condemned and you think there is nothing better for me. And something I find ironic is David thinks the smartest thing for him to do is to go back to Gath. The one place, what did he do last time when we learned? He literally acted like a madman, raving around to save himself. And now he thinks in his infinite wisdom that going back there is the best thing that he thinks. And another, the other phrase he said, if I do this, I will escape. Let me just say this too. When God gives you wisdom, it's never to run away from something. It's to run through something. Amen? Here he's saying, I'll run away from Saul. That is not of God. We're not honoring God if we think I'll just escape. And so many of us, even when we get hurt by the church or hurt by somebody, our first answer is to run. But that is not righteous. That is not what gives peace. Now, what's interesting, we'll look at verse 5 and 7. It looks like David has peace. Saul is no longer chasing after him. And I think in some of our lives, we think, good, I did what's right because I no longer have pain. But you'll see pain actually multiplies later down the road. Verse 5. Now, David said to Achish, I hate his name, like Achish, like don't sound very intelligent. But he said, David said to Achish, if I found favor with you, let me be given a place in one of the outlying towns so I can live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? That day, Achish gave Ziklag to him, and it still belongs to the king of Judah today. Now, by the way, I used to read scripture and I used to have this, like, this theology of like the Bible's always right. So I literally thought that meant still today, always and forevermore, Ziklag will always be possessed by a king of Judah. That is false. You have to recognize this was written at a certain time. Okay, so anyways, maybe I was the only one who read that way, but I'd always be like, that's cool. Like if I go there today, there's still a king of Judah there. No, okay. Verse seven, the length of time that David stayed in Philistine territory amounted to a year and four months. This is insane. I want you to see, he lets doubt move him out so much that for 16 months straight, he is away from the presence of God. Remember, in the Old Testament theology, the narrative is if you are in Israel, that means you're in the presence of God. See, when Jesus died and rose again and the veil was torn, now we have the Holy Spirit. God can be seen everywhere. We have the Holy Spirit. God is with us today. But in the Old Testament, God was only, the presence of God was in the tabernacle, in the temple. And that was always based in Israel. So when David runs away to Gath, you have to see how this applies to your life. It's you literally running away from the presence of God and not speaking to God, not praying to God. Completely ran away. And so David ran away for 16 months. I want to encourage you. Some of us, we think, man, I haven't talked to God for 16 weeks. There's no way he'll bring me back in. David, who is used by God more than almost anybody in all of history, ran away from God for 16 months, but we will still see how God still used him. Now I want to look at Ziklag to give you some context. Ziklag is actually a city in the southernmost part that belonged to Judah when Joshua entered into Israel. Remember that? He, he crossed the Jordan River and God said here, and he laid out, here's everything that will be in Israel's possession. Again, some more Old Testament lessons today. The problem was this, eventually it was everything that God promised was in possession of Israel. But because of the sins of the people of Israel, they started losing territory because they were trusting in man rather than trusting in God. So here at this time of Ziklag, it was technically owned by Israel. However, during Saul's reign, the, um, the Philistines captured the city of Ziklag. So 
in Ziklag at this time, you, ha- you still have descendants of Israelites. You have the descendants of Simeon. I'm not trying to get too detailed in here, but you have them there. But the government, everything is technically ruled by the Philistines. What I find interesting is the Philistines never actually occupied Ziklag. Maybe it speaks to the fact that it wasn't actually that good of a city. And so David here is just saying, hey, I'm going to run away and I'm going to go to the worst of the worst, a place that even the king would just say, yeah, it's yours. So he runs to Ziklag, a land that, is, um, that the enemy is controlled. Now, this is point number two. I want you to recognize we do this so much in our life as well. And I want this to bring you encouragement. A lot of us, we run to sin for the sake of certainty. We run to sin for the sake of certainty. What David wanted more than anything at this time in his life, he didn't care about following God. He didn't care about the presence of God. What he wanted was security. What he wanted was to move the doubt out. But what had happened was the doubt was the one that moved him out. Does that make sense? How many of us, we think the right way is the certain way? right? We think, well, God, he only gives us what's certain. It's a really bad theology. We think God's way is right. Therefore, if he gives it to me, I will know without a doubt in my mind. You ever heard a preacher preach that way? When he says, hey, believe in Jesus and you will know without a doubt in your mind you're going to heaven. If you don't know right where you stood, right where you were when you believed in Jesus, I tell you today to do it now because you need to know without a I kind of am not down with that, all right? Because I don't know. I think especially for me, I was saved at an early age. But let me tell you, there's been seasons in my life where I thought, am I really saved? You guys ever done that? Like uh, there was one time where I went to my house and I thought everybody was supposed to be home and nobody was home. And I thought the rapture happened and I was going to hell. And I, so I literally was like, Jesus, just, I, I'm, I need you, you know? And so I'm calling, literally there was a time, none of them answered their phone. I was looking for clothes just laying around, you know, like left behind has scarred me for life, right? And I thought, oh no, I knew it. I knew it. And then how many of you, you would pray the prayer again. Dear God, forgive me for my A. What's A? A, admit, admit. What B? B, believe. Ah, believe. What I learned in BBS? What was the C word? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Christ, I don't know. Oh, confess. Like, help me, God. You know, and like, you're just so worried that you didn't say the prayer the right way at the right time, at the right place. And you forgot to check on your watch when it happened. So now you're going to hell. I want to tell you, let me give you some encouragement. That is not of the gospel. That is not of the gospel. In fact, most of the times, when you think something is certain, usually, because we're carnal minds and we're broken in our sin, it's usually actually towards the path of sin. So David was doing is he was running towards a fake peace. He wanted certainty no matter the cost. Um, I was actually, uh, my barber this week, I I love going to uh, my barber because um, I'm the only white dude in there, so I feel cool already. And then uh, I try to speak Spanish. It doesn't work. Um, but uh, it's really fun just catching up with them all the time. And, and uh, one, I talk to like, I, I, I pick, I'm like, who do I want to talk to today? You know, like, and so one guy, his daughter has had cancer for a couple of years and she's only like 12 years old and it just completely tears me up every time. And so I went and talked to him and and he was telling me, um, I'm trying not to get too detailed here, but uh, it really broke my heart. He said that his pastor uh, had a sermon the other day, and he said he's been really bothered because in the pastor's sermon, he said, if I were to get cancer, without a doubt, I would still have joy in the Lord, and I'd have no doubts, and I would just keep pursuing Jesus. 
And he's like, that made me mad. But then I also thought, am I saved? Because I doubt a lot. He was like crying while cutting my hair. He's like, you don't know what it's like to have your daughter lose all her hair, just struggle. And she's such a great girl. She's never done anything wrong, you know, all this stuff. And I just sat there and thought, really, dude? Like, and that, and I told him, I said, I hate talking bad about pastors. That's not my role. That, I think there's always context to everything. But let me just tell you, what he just said there was stupid. <laughs> and I spoke some life into him. I said, brother, I am terrified if that would ever happen to me. I don't know what I would do. But I know I wouldn't be certain about anything. <laughs> I would be broken. And even the fact, I was like, even when my daughter was in uh, NICU for 15 days, it broke me. And I was doubtful. So I want to give you some encouragement. I think a lot of us, we put certainty at a higher level of importance than it needs to be. And we have to realize, and I don't think King David realized this yet, but he's about to, that running to what's certain isn't always what's right. And so a lot of times, I think most of the time, if you're doing something right, it will constantly be filled with uncertainty and distress and distraction and depression. It's kind of the way it works. But let's keep going. Verse 8. David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerizites, and the Amechalites. From ancient times, they had, um, they had been the inhabitants of the region through Shur as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land... He did not leave a single person alive, either man or woman. This is important. But he took flocks, herds, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he came back to Achish, who inquired, Where did you raid today? David replied, The south country of Judah. The south country of Jehemarites, or the south country of the Kenites. See, David did not let a man or woman live to be brought to Gath, for he said, or they will inform on us and say, this is what David did. This was David's custom during the whole time he stayed in the Philistine territory. So Achish trusted David, thinking, since he had made himself repulsive to his own people, Israel, he will be my servant forever. Again, if you have a lens thinking that David is the hero that we must resemble, you will have a very hard time following him in chapter 27. Chapter 27, here we have David. I don't know if you picked up on it, but he is literally lying to the king. He is killing the enemies of Judah and then telling Achish, yes, I'm killing the Israelites. Do you guys got it? He's saying, I'm killing everybody who follows God. He's looking like a traitor. He's willing to look like he's killing his own people for the sake of his own safety. How many of us fall into that trap as well, right? We're willing to betray anybody as long as we are safe. Friends, safety is not as satisfying as you think. And David here for 16 months is miserable, but he keeps thinking, if I just run to safety a little bit more, I will be better. Now, here's what happens. Doubt. When you let doubt run your life, it'll always lead to deceit. He starts lying. He starts covering his paths. It made him do terrible things. We see what, look, he killed man and woman. We think, oh, that's great because God told him to. No, we don't have in the narrative that God told him to do this. Why did he kill man, woman, child? Because he knew if he didn't kill everybody, there will be a snitch and snitches get stitches. Amen. But there will be a snitch that tells Achish, hey, they're killing your people. They're not killing 
his people. You see that? So this, there's nothing right about what David is doing here at all, and it actually leads him to killing people. And actually, what we'll learn later on, we're going to learn in a couple weeks, um, maybe even next week, I think. What is David? Remember David, the, the cost of cover-up? He, he, uh, he ha- commits adultery, and it leads him to commit murder and all this stuff. And let me just say, I think he actually is starting that pattern of behavior here in chapter 27. He's starting that pattern where he did one bad thing. Instead of confessing it and moving forward, he did another bad thing to cover up that last bad thing. And then he had to do the next bad thing. And it leads to all sorts of destruction. And eventually, if you continue to read on to chapter 30, doubt leads to deceit, but it actually leads to defeat. With, with David, he eventually was defeated. Um, Ziklag actually gets taken over and they lose their wives. David loses his wives and his children and all 600 men. They lose their family and they are freaking out. And David in that moment realizes it's because of, I knew, because scripture says this, right? Sin will always find you out. You can keep it hidden for a season, but eventually it will come up. And so in this case, we actually see though that God gives mercy to the people of David and actually is able, they recapture all of the women and children and not one of them were killed. Does that make what David did right? No. It just shows, praise God, right? That God gives us mercy even when we don't deserve it. Amen? So that's a really good uh, reminder for us. But here's what I want to end with. What should our relationship with doubt be? Because David clearly here in this text, doubt is bad. It leads to deceit and eventually defeat. It was the worst, one of the worst parts of his narrative, the worst part of his story. And if you let doubt completely run your life, it will lead to a really, really bad narrative for your own life. But again, we as Christians, I don't want us to be labeled as people who say, don't doubt, don't question anything, just believe it, receive it, and move on. So what should we do? So I I, I spent so much time this week because we this series is about looking at the journal, uh, the journey of King David, but then looking at his journal. I actually found out that David didn't write a single journal entry for 16 months. You ever notice that, by the way? When you're running from the presence of God, it's really hard to pray. It's really hard to, and so David was silent, which speaks volumes. But then, so what I actually did is looked at other Psalms that he has written. And one of the major things that he's written about doubt is in Psalm 22. So if you want to jump there to Psalm 22, Psalm is like the easiest one to find because it's pretty much in the middle of your Bible. If you have a phone, well, you'll find it really easily. Now, Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. I want us to see, let me look at verse 12. Jump down to verse 12. Verse 12, many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me lions mauling and roaring. Verse 18, they divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. 
Now, now Psalm 22, I want you to get this and we'll be done. Martin Luther said, Psalm 22, I quote, he says, Psalm 22 has helped me out of difficulties from which no king or ruler could ever freed me from. So the question is, how is this passage, how is this journal entry from David about doubt so helpful for us? I want us to see we cannot miss out on doubt. Notice even verse one and two and then verse three. Verse one and two, David is complaining to God. But then verse three, he still worships God. You see that? He's saying, why have you forsaken me? Where have you gone? You've abandoned me. But then he says, but you're holy. But you're the one in heaven. I think this is a relationship we're supposed to have with doubt. It's this constant like, God, I hate where I'm at. Here's my doubts. I feel like you've forgotten me. But at the very same time, even though I don't feel like saying this, I'm going to say, but God, you are God and you're in control. And I don't feel like you're in control right now, but you are and I trust you. You see that? That's the relationship we're supposed to have with doubt. Here's the last point. I want us to be assured by this. I want you to be encouraged. Point number three. I need you to say this in your heart. I'm not saved by my certainty. What I love about Psalm 22, it's not really apparent in 1 Samuel 27, but David recognizes it's not my certainty that saves me. And I think that's really, really big. See, see what we have here is a lot of us, we think, oh, I am saved because I am certain it's what he's done for me. I'm certain. But you'll have in the narrative, you have in the book of Job, you have all the way through the Psalms, constantly David himself is saying, God, I don't know if you're there. We need, you need to give yourself permission to doubt. You need to give yourself permission to to proclaim your uncertainties to God, but at the same time, proclaim the things you are certain about with God. You see that? I love it. It's in the gospels when the guy says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's the relationship we need to have. Here's the things I believe, God, but here's a whole list of things I don't believe. Can you help me? Now, verse 20, I mean, chapter 22, uh, maybe this sounds familiar to you. He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Other translations says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to prove the point that actually David wasn't forsaken. At any time in his life, he wasn't forsaken. Even in 1 Samuel 27, he did a terrible thing, but still David, uh, God showed David mercy and brought him out. Not once was David ever actually forsaken, but that doesn't mean he didn't feel forsaken. And that's the same thing for us. A lot of us, we feel forsaken. And you can admit that. You can say, I feel forsaken, but I promise you, as a believer in Jesus, you are never forsaken. How do I know that? Well, Psalm 22 is actually not about David. If you guys remember um, in the story with Jesus, when he's on the cross, what is the phrase he says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? CSB version, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's what this means, and this should give us so much encouragement. On the cross, Jesus said the first line of Psalm 22. Now, I didn't know this, but actually in Hebrew culture, what you would do is you would just quote the first line of a psalm, and it's insinuating that you are saying the whole chapter. So when Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is now saying, I am talking about Psalm 22. So he's saying like verse 18, which uh, verse 17, which actually happened. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. Does that sound familiar? Isn't this crazy? David wrote this 
way before Jesus came. But it's actually pointing to Jesus. They divided my garments among themselves. Do you remember when they did that? And they cast lots for my clothing. They literally did that. But Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Here's what I want you to see. The scene of the cross is Psalm 22 played out. And here's the encouragement we have. Jesus was actually forsaken on the cross so that you and I would only feel forsaken, but we're not actually forsaken. That's the hope we have. So David felt, he doubted, he felt like he was abandoned, but we can say with full assurance, I may feel abandoned, but I know God, you will never abandon me. Scripture says, I will never leave you, never forsake you. Why? Because on the cross, what was so special about the cross? On the cross, God abandoned Jesus for the first time in eternity. And he punished Jesus for the sins that you and I deserve to be punished for. I wrote this down, I think, in some of you, in, on the app. But I want you to see the difference between Dave and Jesus and how Jesus is actually the true hero here. Dave sacrificed obedience for the sake of certainty. But Jesus sacrificed certainty for the sake of obedience. Dave was willing to not follow God as long as he felt certain. Jesus was willing to not feel certain. It would be the first time ever to be separated from God because he wanted to follow what he said. Here's what I said. I close. Music can come up. I want us to realize this. In this text, I hope it gives you encouragement. Certainty does not save you. But that doesn't mean you're not certainly saved. One of my favorite illustrations, the Passover, when um, the original Passover in the book of Exodus, you take a guy, you take two guys. If you remember the story, one guy, Joe, the other guy, Bob, they're getting together and they get a de- declaration from God, you will be safe. We will not kill your firstborn son as long as you take the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. Now, Joe was totally confident. He took the blood, put it over the doorpost, was like, this will be great. I'm so excited. I love my firstborn son. He'll be fine. Now, Bob wasn't so confident. He talked to Joe. Joe, are you worried about tonight? No, not at all. Why not? I got the blood, baby. Got over the doorpost. There's no way the angel will come and kill my firstborn son. But but Bob says, I just, uh, I still, I'm worried. Is he, hey, Joe, are you going to, are you going to have your firstborn son like sleep with you tonight? No. He smells. Um, he's going to be in his own room. But Bob's like, I'm keeping my firstborn son. I'm going to hold him all night. But Bob also takes the blood and puts it over the doorpost. Now, let me ask you, which firstborn son was killed the next morning? Neither. Neither of them. Even if Bob was so doubtful and was holding tight to his son all night, didn't sleep a wink, Joe slept perfectly felt great about life. Let me tell you, it wasn't their certainty that saved them. It was the blood on the doorpost that gave them life. What we have to be reminded about in our Christian life, there are times when we doubt. There are times where we wonder, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? There There will be times where we think, God, are you here for me? And the worst thing you can do is listen to the lie of the enemy. And instead of saying, what God wants us to do is, I'm not certain, but I'm going to keep running to you to find certainty. What the enemy wants you to do is, you're not certain. You're not even a child of God. You need to stop approaching the Father altogether. Do you have doubts? That is not what determines if you're saved or not. 
What determines if you are saved for eternity for certain is if you say, God, I believe what you did on the cross for me and how you resurrected. Help me in my unbelief. The parts I don't fully get. The parts where I don't know if I know what your plan is for my life. That is what saves me.